0: Heavenly Father and gracious God, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and mold them and shape them according to your purposes. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So what in the world is Yahweh doing bringing a lawsuit against his people Israel and what can we learn from it? That's the question. What in the world is God doing bringing a lawsuit against his own people, and what can we learn from it? Now, you're gonna need your text this morning, and I'm hoping, actually, that you take your groovy bulletin version, because it's got verse numbers, which I need. So, if you're following along, we're in Micah 6, and actually, I'm looking at the first five verses. Really, really interesting section of the Old Testament. We're in the 700s BC, we're toward the end of the 8th century. The Northern Kingdom is going to fall in 722, and Micah is roughly between the year 730-ish and into the 690s, some 35 to 40 years in that period, which is a very dramatic period of Israeli history because the Northern Kingdom is actually going to fall at the hands of the Assyrians in 722. And the southern kingdom is nearly going to fall. In fact, Sennacherib and the Assyrians are going to completely surround Judah in, and Jerusalem in 701 BC. And it says in an extra biblical reference that he surrounded Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. Things are not looking good. So it's a very loaded time in history, 550 years roughly since the Exodus, and you can tell by the way that our passage begins that something is terribly wrong because God is bringing a lawsuit, an indictment against his people. Now look at your text and think with me. I want to talk about the context of the indictment. I want to talk about the charge that's involved in the indictment. I want to talk about the counter that's brought in response to the charge in the indictment. And then I want to talk about the conclusion. So if you're staying with me, context, charge, counter charge, conclusion. They all very helpfully begin with C to help you remember. All right, so context, look at your text. It's a controversy. That's what the word literally means in Hebrew. It means to fight, to battle, to contend. But this word in our context is very legal sounding. And if you look at your text, that's the way the translators translate it. And it's used not once, not twice, but three times in the first two verses. Look at your text. When it says arise, you see where I am? Plead your case. That word case is the word controversy, indictment, Look at verse 2. Hear the mountains, the indictment of the Lord. That's the same word as the word translated case in the first verse in the second part of it. And then just in case we missed it, that's twice. For the third time it says, the second half of verse 2, you see where I am. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend. So get the picture because this is serious stuff. You're in the dock. God's prosecuting the case. Seems serious to me. Oh, not done yet. Who's in the jury? Did you notice? Very interesting stuff, this. The mountains and the hills. Oh, what's that about? Well, uh, Exodus 19, uh, back there with the beginning of the whole thing, God creates a covenant with his people. He gives them the Ten Commandments, and Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and Mount Sinai is the witness to the covenant. When God sets it up in the first place. In fact, there's lots of fire and lightning, and the people aren't even allowed to touch the mountain. Only Moses can go up on the mountain. Only Moses can come down from the mountain. The mountain is the great witness. The hills, all of the natural order is the witness because this is the God of the whole earth making this covenant. So in the context, for example, of my own marriage, it would be like I got in an argument with my wife and I said, I, I call for St. Stephen, Swickley and Alden Hathaway, the Bishop of Pittsburgh. Now that doesn't mean a thing to you. It means a lot to her, though, because that's where our wedding was, and he was the Bishop of Pittsburgh at the time. In fact, he was, he, was, he was actually there at the service. Whatever's going on, if I said that to my wife, she would think it was a very big deal. Are we all together? So this is a covenantal lawsuit, the entire centrality and core of the relationship is at stake, and God is upset, so upset that he's put his people in the dock and he's prosecuting a case against him, all right? So far, so good? All right, now, the charge, you would think, is brought by God, but Actually, the way this whole thing starts is the other way around. It's actually the people that have brought a charge against him, which raises the really fascinating question of how in the world did we get here? Now look at your text and look at verse 3 and think. This is when you get, and this happens a lot in scripture, you get half of a telephone conversation. You do realize that most of Paul's epistles are like this, for example. You don't get anything from the Corinthians about what they're really like. You just get a letter from Paul to the Corinthians. But the letter from Paul to the Corinthians is responding to various, now about this that you asked me about, now about that. So you get half of a telephone conversation. Have you ever heard that have go on in your house and try to figure out who the other person is and what's going on? It's, it's actually an intriguing kind of mental exercise. Now, you can figure out what's on the other side of this conversation if you look at your text and think carefully. Oh, my people. Very intimate language. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Hmm. What does that mean? Well, what it means is this, brothers and sisters. It means that the people of God are tired. They're spiritually burnt out. They're spiritually burnt out to a crisp. They've grown so cold that there's no coals in the fire at all. The fire's out, the lights are on, but nobody's home. They're just going through the motions. Yahweh worship is deader than a doorknob. Oh, they're all there at the liturgy, but it doesn't matter. There's no fire there. There's no enthusiasm. There's no heart-based participation. And they've grown so cold and so burnt out that not only are they spiritually depressed, they're actually doing more than that. You can get in this situation, this happens with psychological depression too, you can be so depressed that you start getting angry and you actually blame other people or other things outside you for what's actually going on to you. And the people of God have gotten so depressed that not only are they cold and are they burnt out, but they're actually saying this, it's your fault to god you you you're the one that started this you brought us here we blame you now that's a very interesting thing to happen let me remind you of a really interesting section in the prophet elijah's life for just a moment you may remember but right after elijah and the prophets of baal which is first kings 18, you remember the story, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and he prays like crazy, and fire comes down, and the burnt offering is burnt up, and then the prophets of Baal are killed. It's a spectacular triumph for Yahweh. So you would think that they all, right, if it's a children's story, they all live happily ever after. Not in your life. Um That's not what happens. The next chapter begins with the wife of the king, whose name is Jezebel, sending word to the prophet Elijah, you know, the one that just triumphed on the mountain, the one that was on the front page of the Jerusalem Post, that one. She says, I'm going to do to you what you did to the prophets. And he's utterly terrified and he runs away. Not only is he utterly terrified and he runs away, but it says, and I quote, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree and he asked that he might die Saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. There it is, spiritual depression. And you can even hear, if you're listening carefully, a little hint of the blaming of God. Well, I'm in this, you it's your fault. Right? And it even gets worse than that. He takes them to a mountain, they get in a conversation, they get in a detailed conversation, and he finally says, Lord, only I'm left. I'm the only one. Nobody is faithful in Israel except me. And translation. And where are the other people, Lord? And why have you stuck me in this mess?" It's your fault that it's this way, too. He's completely distorted his perspective on reality. He's lost touch with who Yahweh is, what he's done, what situation he's in, and he's even lost touch with the actual situation in Israel because when the Lord rebukes him, he says there's still 7,000 other people who haven't bowed their knees to Baal. In other words, there's more people in the world than you, but have you ever noticed if you get discouraged, your world becomes small and smaller and then very small. The dark little dungeon of your own little ego, to quote, Malcolm Muggeridge. And this is where the people of God are in our story. They're depressed, they're cold, they've lost all enthusiasm, and they're angry, and they're blaming God. Now, I don't know if you figured this out, but I said to you at the beginning that God was bringing a lawsuit against Israel, but I just told you that Israel is the one that started it by bringing an accusation against God. Aha! Shows you that your arms are too short to box with God. Be careful if you're going to accuse God, because you might not get what you want. you might not get what you think. So this is God's response to them, and God's response to them is, okay, you're bringing an accusation against me, I bring a counter-accusation against you. Ha! And look at what he says, oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up, everybody see where I am, verses three and four, from the land of Egypt, and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Now it's, impossible to get this over in English, and I I had a debate with myself this week as to whether I was going to actually quote the two Hebrew verbs to you, but first of all, I'm not sure I can do it entirely accurately, and second of all, you're not going to be impressed, so... (laughs) It's not it's it's not worth it, but I can get it over into English and give you an idea But what you need to realize if you look at your text for just a second is that phrase How have I wearied you in verse 3 and that phrase I brought you up in verse 4 are Absolutely identical in Hebrew except for one sound they rhyme. It's deliberate. He's making a pun And you can get it across into English like this. Hey, I didn't let you down. I brought you up. Oops. You see what he's doing? He's saying, let's think. Let's reflect and let's go back and remember how this whole thing started. I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. That word redeemed, you see where I am? Verse 4 means to deliver or free someone who is bound by legal obligation through the payment of a price. As I never tire of saying, Christ came to pay a debt he did not owe. Because we owe a debt we could not pay, it brings to mind 1 Peter 1 Verse 18 and 19. You were ransomed from the feudal ways that you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I paid the price, I brought you up. You were in Egypt under a particular country, Egypt, under a particular situation, slavery, and I brought you up, and I paid the price, and I delivered you. That's the counter charge. Are we all together? Now, what I want you to notice is the conclusion, because that's the most majestic part of a story for our purposes. What's the prescription for spiritual depression? And as we go flying by, can I just point out to you that if you're dealing with someone who's depressed, either psychologically or spiritually or both, it's a tricky situation. We don't have time to get way into it, but one of the really intriguing modern examples is uh, Sheryl Sandberg, who used to be the chief financial officer of Facebook. You may know her, you may not. She wrote a book called Lean In. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Her husband actually died, tragically and unexpectedly, while he was working out on a treadmill. Hmm in the middle of the day. And she writes about the process of grief in the book, and she gets depressed, wouldn't you? If you were in a situation like her, You know, roughly young, middle-aged, highly successful person in California, and your, your husband all of a sudden one day drops dead, so she gets all these visits and all these people come to help her. And the one thing that she makes very clear in the book is almost no one who came to visit her said anything that was helpful. Almost everything was unhelpful. But what she observes in the book, which I think is absolutely fascinating, is there's a liturgical chorus of patterns that everybody seems to say, which is this, "What what can I do for you? And what she points out in the book is that's the last thing on earth, on earth, that someone in deep grief needs. Why? Because they literally, when you're in grief, you feel like you're stuck in a hole and it has no edges. The problem with grief is it feels boundless, it feels edgeless. And so you feel not just obligated to what's happened, you feel obligated almost to the whole world, but the one thing you feel is obligated and stuck. And all these people are coming to her in her stuckness and her feeling of overwhelming obligation and saying, can I obligate you one more time by doing this? <laughs> and she said, the people that were really helpful to me are the people who didn't ask me what I wanted, they just brought me soup. For example. And they just sat down. Interesting stuff. Well, let's see how Yahweh goes about it. Did you happen to notice what he does? It's right there in verse 5. It's just really a single word, but it's loaded in every conceivable way. The word is remember, verse 5. That's a conclusion. That's the solution to Israel's burnout. They've lost so much perspective, and God is bringing to mind a single action, which is very, very crucial for us to fully understand. The word in Hebrew means this, to remember, to recall, to call to mind, listen, usually in such a way as to affect your present feeling, thought, and action. Did you catch how holistic the word remember is? Now, you already know this, but I'm just going to remind you. You you do know that you're in a faith where remembrance is one of the most important things in the world, right? You know that, right? At the core of our faith every week is a sacrament, which is a meal of remembrance where Jesus says do this in remembrance of me and if I quote the right one words at the altar rail take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee and be thankful it's an interesting exercise if you ever want to do it just go through the Eucharistic rite and ask yourself the question how many times does the word remember or some reference to memory actually occur in there it's as far as the eye can see it's like an ocean of references why because we're so good at forgetting Now, what I want you to notice about this passage is three things. First, the importance of memory, which I just hit on. Second, the nature of memory. And third, the contents. I want to say something second about the nature of memory. Memory is never vague, it's always specific. It has texture and it has history. Look at what it says I brought you up from the land of Egypt, I redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you leaders who have names. I did things that in places that have names. I did things with kings that have names and prophets that have names. You all see where I am? It's got specificity, texture, and history. If you look at the Ten Commandments back in Exodus 20, God doesn't come to the people. This is after already the Passover, so they should have some sense of who they're dealing with. But God doesn't come to them with the Ten Commandments and saying, Hi, I'm God, or this is God. Now let's talk Ten Commandments. How do they begin? I will remind you. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do you notice what he's doing? It's very textured, it's very specific, it's very historical. That's the way that memory works. Right, when I conjured up the image of my wedding, I brought up a particular pair, St. Stephens Sowickley and a particular person, the Bishop of Pittsburgh, Alden Hathaway, see what I did? It has specifics, and the way that memory doesn't work is, if it's vague, if I show you a slide and it's out of focus and you just see the bare outlines, if it's really meaningful to you, maybe it'll mean something, but if I all of a sudden take the slide and adjust it in such a way that all the colors and the contrasts are beautifully seen, it changes everything. It can become absolutely gripping and even awesome in some cases. So the nature of memory is it's historical, it's textured, and it's specific. And the third thing is the contents, and what I wanted you to notice is it's got three pieces in this passage, and they're all very beautiful. It's the fact of redemption, that's one piece, it's the the fact of people who are special, who lead you and have an impact on you, did you notice? And there are three, uh, two men and a woman, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, so leaders have been raised up by God who are God's gifts to you, have done things for you, and then in addition to that, there's people and there's places in verse 5, and those all represent Represent various salvation acts that God does back in the early part of the Old Testament story, but there's an act behind every one of those references. There's a rock, there's something. We're talking about stones of remembrance. In the second verse of um, Thou fount, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, if you do it in the traditional form, it says, here I raise my Ebenezer, do you all know the second verse? Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help have I come. They actually take that word and translate it in the modern translation. Here I raise my, or here I have my greatest treasure. It's awful. It's a terrible change. Why? Because Ebenezer's from the Old Testament. It's, a, it's a, in 1 Samuel, it's a story. Guess what Ebenezer means? It means stone of help, literally, In other words, it's a stone of remembrance at a particular time. Here I raise my stone of remembrance. So the whole idea here is this, brothers and sisters. The way out of spiritual depression is to get perspective by realizing that the greatest weapon you have in your life against discouragement is your own memory of your own history of the grace of God at work in your life. There's nothing more powerful than that. It's just that we don't use it, and we don't use it well, and we don't use it specifically. One of the quotes I brought with me is from Thomas Goodwin, who in the 17th century was actually president of Magdalen College, Oxford, an English Puritan theologian. He said this, "'Whenever I feel spiritually tired or cold or unable to preach His grace, I used to take a turn up and down the sins of my past life. And then he said this, and then I could preach his magnificent grace again. You see what he's doing? He's saying, I go back to Egypt. I remember what my life was like before I met the Lord. I think about what my life would be like if I still didn't know the Lord. And I go, oh wow. And then I regroup, then I rethink. Memory is absolutely indispensable. The military knows this in ways that most of us don't. They're very, very good at memory, do you know that? One of the many things that you can do to illustrate memory is to think about all the ways that the military uses it. Just one illustration for our purposes this morning, the Vietnam War Memorial. I hope you go. I actually think every American should go. My family and I finally got a chance to go a number of years ago. My wife's cousin died there. We went and found his name. And you may know about the memorial that one of the most powerful things is, it's got all the names. Oh look, it's specific. That means something. Now, what you may not know if you've not been is, every single day, so many people go and are so moved that they not only go and they not only etch the names, they just are so moved that they leave things there, which the people who are on staff there have to collect at the end of the day. And they do this every single day, and different things are left for different reasons by different people on different days. And there's actually a book called, and I quote, Offerings at the Wall, where you can find pictures of many of these. I'm just gonna give you a few, because I have trouble getting through this without totally losing it. One man left dog tags, a headband, and a letter that reads, to all of you here from Echo Company, 1st Marine Regiment, 1st Marine Division, I leave you my headband which contains my sweat from the war, my dog tag, and a picture of me and Mike. Another time, another place, I'll never forget you. One woman left a single braid of hair and a picture of a house with an American flag hanging at the porch. Her note read, Wayne, I think of you every day and I miss you so much. I love you. And finally, written on one flag was this message. May all of you who died, all of you who are still missing and all of you who returned home, never be forgotten. Connie. Now that is memory at work. It's powerful. It has impact. It's got specifics. It's got history. It's got names. It's important. And those military people know it. Why don't we Christians know it? Why don't we realize how important that is? You have your stones of remembrance, I have mine. I can only give you an invitation remember this morning. I can't tell you what to remember. I just need to exhort you that to remember. So here's my personal challenge in conclusion, and then I'm going to wrap things up. I I want you to do me a personal favor and take five minutes three times this week, and I want you to remember something. I want you to remember a person. I want you to remember a place where God took real action in your life it made a real difference. Whatever it is, wherever it is, maybe it'll involve looking up a diary, maybe it'll involve looking up a picture. In my case, sometimes I actually take out old letters that people have written me. Whatever helps you get there. But I want you to sit there, I want you to think about what happened, and I want you to think about what God did and how much it means and what it says that the same God who did that is still the God who's the God of your life today you got to promise me you're going to do this because it's important. So I give you a lawsuit against Israel. There's a context, there's a charge, there's a counter charge, and there's a conclusion. And it's all about this, brothers and sisters. He didn't let us down. He didn't let us down. He brought us up. In Jesus' name, amen.